0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning question for you. How do you explain to a three-year-old daylight savings time? (laughs) That was my task this morning as I woke up. And to be honest, for myself, I went to bed last night completely forgetting that I was getting an extra hour of sleep on the, the back end of waking up this morning. And so this morning, as I'm up a little bit earlier than I expected to be, my kids are also up earlier than I was expecting them to be, and so before I left this morning, I could hear uh, our three-year-old Adia kind of fidgeting around upstairs, and so I went up to her and explained to her that even though, because we have these, these clocks in their bedrooms that they turn colors, so it's red when they have to stay in bed, it's yellow for like the last 15 minutes, and it's green, you're free to go, you're, you're released, kind of a thing. And so the light was green, but it's green an hour before they're supposed to be out of bed, which I'm convinced the people who made Daylight Savings Time did not have kids, And so I'm telling her, trying to explain to her, like, Addie, I know it says it's green, but it's really this time, and it's not computing at all. And so I sit down next to her and explain to her, like, you know, the origins of daylight savings time. (laughs) Now in in 1883, there was 144 different local times in North America. And you're like, what were we doing? Um, But anyway, all that to say, The daylight saving time is actually one of the very few times I'm really grateful for the iPhone and the technology that it actually sets the clock for you, you know, the night before. And so the reason I say this is because kind of one thing that we've done over the past few years is we've really tried to not have electronics in our bedroom and have, you know, our iPhones be our kind of alarm clock just by way of getting up the next morning, not having the first thing we come in contact with, our phone. And there's something that happens to really all of us that our phones and technology and all these different things, they're actually forming us in deeper ways than we might realize. the, the, The iPhone that we carry in many ways is a spiritual formation device, if you think about it. And so one thing that we learned, my wife and I, Shine, learned a few years ago through this book called The Common Rule is this very simple principle, Scripture before phone. And it's something that we've tried to do as a family and just kind of something that we've tried to impart to others, is just having this very simple kind of basic idea that regardless of how our day is going to start, when it comes between Scripture and phone, Scripture is always going to come first. And it's something that I think we, we try to instill, not always perfectly, but because we are followers of Jesus and because that we seek to come under the authority of him and his word, you know, we believe as Christians, as, as, Timothy, or as Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work. And this is what we believe as Christians, that when we come and gather together, as we hear the word read and the word preached, we're not just reading mere human words. We're not just reading words that are an ancient story from an ancient past, but we're reading, yes, ancient words written by human authors, but inspired by God's Spirit, so that as we hear from God, as we hear from the Bible, we're actually hearing directly from the words of God. John Piper sometimes says, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. And I think there's something to that. And the reason I say that is because as we've sort of developed this habit of Scripture before phone, sometimes what happens is, like, say you're reading through Philippians. Philippians you are going to use Philippians as kind of your time with the Lord in the morning. It's going to be your devotional sort of reading. You're reading through Philippians, and there's all these really amazing and profound lines that we love and cherish. I mean, right from the get-go, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And he goes on to express his thanksgiving and his gratitude for the church in Philippi, and then he tells them in Philippians 1, 27, only, friends, let your life be worthy of the gospel. Let your citizenship in the kingdom be worthy. Reflect the beauty of the gospel in your everyday life. And he goes on to give some sort of pointers as to how that might work out. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And he goes on to express and expound on the beauty of the gospel in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that he humbled himself, become an obedient point of death, even death on a cross, and has highly exalted Jesus, that this is who we follow. This is what it means to live a, a life worthy of the gospel, one that reflects the humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus. And that, friends, Paul would say, work this out, Philippians two twelve and following. Work out this salvation, work out this gospel with fear and trembling. And you're reading this along in your devotional time, you're reading through Philippians, then you, you come to this moment, this section at, at verse 19, all of a sudden, after all these profound lines, you come to this moment of, hey, I hope to send Timothy to you. I hope to send Epaphroditus to you. And you're like, hold on a second. We were on a roll there. We had a lot of good memory verses and a lot of good things to tweet and put on coffee mugs someday. What happened? Why are we talking about these two guys? I'm sure they're very nice people. If you're familiar with Paul's letters at all, you kind of see the pattern that sometimes he has in his letters where if he is going to mention some other people, usually it's at the end of the letters. Say hi to so-and-so. So-and-so is, you know, he's coming to you soon. But here in Philippians, basically smack dab in the middle of the letter is these two little paragraphs. Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what are these paragraphs doing here at this moment in Philippians? And that's part of what I want to ask and tackle this morning is looking at this passage and realizing, okay, Paul's doing something, not just, hey, there's some things I had as I was writing that I kind of forgot about. I'm just going to insert them right here as I'm going along here. No, no, there's actually some intentionality with. Why and how Paul is writing this letter and why these two paragraphs are here at this moment in the letter. And so this is kind of the the flow and the organization of what we want to do this morning. So before we ask what does this passage mean for us, there is a little bit of pre-work we need to do on the front end. And so number one, I want to look at the placement of this passage. Number two, I want to look at the two men of this passage, the men of this passage. And number three... I want to look at the only command of this passage. Just to kind of give a little bit of like, here's where this is going to end. I want to kind of give away the punchline, if I, if I may, the, the third point there. The only command is actually found in verse 29. Honor such men. Okay? That's the one command in this whole little pericope, this whole little section. So that's where this whole thing is going. Paul is wanting the church in Philippi to honor these kinds of men, honor these kinds of people who are living this kind of Gospel-centered life, this life that is worthy of the gospel, honor these kinds of men. But before we get to there, let's think together again with these three points. The kind of, this is our flow of where we're going to be headed this morning. Again, I was kind of making kind of somewhat fun of all the amazing sort of Bible memory verses that Philippians has a moment ago. All the, the beautiful verses that we love to quote and we love to memorize. But it's also helpful to recognize that as we're thinking about the letter of the Philippians and looking at number one here, the placement of this passage... Those sort of famous lines in Philippians, in Philippians 1 and chapter 2, really kind of help us understand and see, okay, why would Paul then all of a sudden talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus here? So again, think with me just briefly here with the flow of the letter so far. Paul opens up grace and peace to you. Paul and Timothy, he's writing to these people here in Philippi. And he he commends them. He praises them. He prays for them. And he tells them that God, who began a good work in you, is going to complete it. And he has all this joy and affection Paul does for the church in Philippi. And then he tells them in verse 27, and then this is where many people think this is like the main thesis or the main sort of like motive or goal that Paul has for the church in Philippi is Philippians 1 verse 27. Let your life be worthy or reflect the good news of Jesus. That's like Paul's aim, many people think, of the letter to the Philippians, that they would live such lives full of joy, humility, and unity that reflect, that are worthy of, that that demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. And so from then on, Paul's going to teach them and show them what this looks like. What does this kind of life that's worthy of the gospel, that reflects the gospel? And he goes in and talks about how if you have compassion and sympathy and love and affection in the spirit and with one another, complete my joy by being of the same mind. A life that's worthy of the gospel is a life that is of the same mind, living in unity with one another because your your union with Christ is the main thing. And why is this possible? Why is this even something you can do as a Christian? Well, because Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, all authority, all power, all glory, lays that aside, so to speak, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and shows us, demonstrates what it looks like To to live a life where I'm not seeking my own interests, but seeking the benefit of someone else. And because of this, Paul's saying in chapter 2 that this is what has saved you. This is what has brought you into God's family. And Paul then says in Philippians 2.12, work this out. All the pronouns, remember Bob told us last week, all the pronouns here in in chapter 2, they're all plural. You all work this salvation out with fear and trembling. Because God is working in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. And then Paul comes to this paragraph here with Timothy and Epaphroditus as saying, kind of highlighting, these are kind of an example. This is all the things I've been teaching you about, all these things about living a life worthy of the gospel, living a life that's unified around King Jesus and his mission, living a life that reflects Philippians 2, 5 through 11, a life that is working out one's salvation with fear and trembling. This is what it looks like. Timothy and Epaphroditus. They're not perfect, but let me take a moment to show you, Church in Philippi, here's some flesh and blood examples that this life is actually possible. This isn't just some theory up here in the air. No, this life, this life worthy of the gospel, centered around him, is what we're all invited to. And let me show you more about what this is like, which leads me to number two. Let's zoom in a little bit more on the men of this passage. If that kind of shows us the placement, why Paul is having this, these two paragraphs here, these examples, these flesh and blood examples of everything he's talked about before, let's zone in here on the men of this passage. Now, first, we come to Timothy. Timothy is going to be the, the more well-known of the two, but still not like a super famous character in the Bible. What we know from Timothy, quite a, quite a lot, actually, Paul and Timothy, it seems like they first met back in Acts chapter 16. It's actually the story right before the founding of the church in Philippi. And from that first few verses in chapter 16, we're told that it seems like Timothy's father was not a Christian, but Timothy's mother eventually, or at some point, became a Christian. And over the course of many years, Paul seems to have had this fatherly sort of relationship to Timothy, and Timothy was seen by Paul as sort of like a spiritual son. They had this this familial, father-son-ish type of relationship together. And over the course of many journeys and and encounters throughout the book of Acts, it seems like this friendship blossomed and bloomed to the point where eventually Paul entrusted Timothy with being one of the main leaders, if not the leader, of the church in Ephesus. And so at some point, Paul then kind of has Timothy stationed in Ephesus, being sort of the main leader there of the church there. And Paul writes two letters. We have them in our Bibles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And so this is someone, Timothy, who Paul has had Many years of, or will have many years of camaraderie and affection and and ministry together. Someone who Paul deeply loves and has great compassion and affection for. And he wants, Paul does, the church in Philippi to understand who Timothy is and why they should welcome him and what they should think about him. So let's look at verse 19, where Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they, all, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, I love this because what Paul is highlighting here is that Timothy is someone who is going to be genuinely concerned, not seeking his own interest but the interests of others. Now, if, again, you're reading through Philippians in one, one, one sitting, Hearing this letter read out loud, that phrase, y'all, that, that line there of seeking one's own interest or not seeking one's own interest was already told to us earlier in chapter two. That was the kind of the one of the admissions Paul had for the church in Philippi. Don't seek your own interests, but rather seek the interests of others. And again, here's this example of Paul showing the church in Philippi. Here is Timothy, who's living out these instructions, who's living out this vision of a life that's centered around King Jesus and his gospel. He's one who is not seeking his own interests, but actually is genuinely, deeply concerned for your welfare. Now there's part of me when I read, especially verse 20, when Paul writes something like, for I have no one like him. Or I'm like, Paul, what do you mean by that? That seems like that's a little dramatic. Don't you? There's, Sometimes when I read this, I go, is Paul being like overly dramatic here? For I have no one else like him. Like Timothy's, he's the guy. No one else. There's something that we as a family kind of half-joking but also half-seriously do with our kids is that when they're making a big deal about something, when they're being dramatic, our last name's Maddox. One of the things we, we tell our kids is don't be a Dramatics <laughs> is what we tell them. And sometimes I kind of wonder, and maybe that's good parenting or not. We'll, we'll see. But... <laughs> Jury's still out. But sometimes I think, is Paul being like a very dramatic or overly dramatic here in this moment? And I don't think he is. I think Paul, in in a sense, he's really wanting to elevate and highlight and, and convey his sort of emotional affection and his deep concern for the church in Philippi by showing how Timothy himself has deep affection and concern for the church in Philippi. Because he goes on to say in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth it's a very important phrase in the New Testament, in particular with this paragraph as it describes Timothy. It conveys this idea of like a precious metal going through the process of burning and fire and refinement and coming out as something beautiful and whole and glorious to look at. It's as if Paul is telling the church in Philippi that Timothy has, he has some mileage He has some experience. He's seen some life. He's gone through some trials, and he has proven his worth, or he has proven worth. Not in the sense where he's, like, earned it for himself, but because he has developed, has this maturity, has this sort of anchoring presence about him. Because of all the trials you will read about in the book of Acts, all the things that he has witnessed and seen and suffered for for the sake of the gospel, Paul says his proven worth, or his proven character formed through the hard knocks of life, formed through suffering. Paul also describes Timothy, and I mentioned this a moment ago, as he's like a son to me. Again, we see that familial connection, that that brotherly, yes, but more in this specific case, this father-son to connection that that Paul has for Timothy. And to see how throughout the years of ministry that Paul and Timothy had, it was like this father-son relationship where, In many ways, it's Paul passing on all the wisdom, all the insight, all of the the knowledge and the the experience that he has to Timothy. And Timothy having this humble posture of receiving and asking questions and learning and not having this sort of arrogant attitude of, oh, I know everything, I've got it all figured out, I've been hand-selected by the Apostle Paul, let me just go run my own show and do my own mission. No, no, Timothy seems to have had this disposition of a humble learner. Someone who is soaking up all the wisdom that they can get. To the point where Paul actually has to tell Timothy later on in, in those two letters that I mentioned a moment ago, of hey, don't, you don't have to be so timid all the time. Like God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of one of power, love, and a self-mind. Like If anything, Timothy seems to have lacked confidence in places that, and at times. But also I think this reflects Timothy's own posture of seeking to learn. Not always assuming that he knows everything. Not always assuming that he's got it all figured out. And I want us to also notice what Paul does not say about Timothy. Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy is an amazing speaker. Super charismatic, can hold the attention of the crowd. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even say Timothy has this most holy, amazing character. But rather the thing that Paul seems to highlight about Timothy is, quote, he will genuinely care for you. This seems to be one of the main reasons why Paul later in verse 29 is going to say, honor such men. This is a, a man, this is a person, this is a life worth honoring. Why? Why? because he's not seeking his own interest, but is genuinely concerned for your welfare. He's genuinely concerned, the idea of welfare, genuinely concerned for the outcomes in your life, the way your life goes, the flourishing of your life. He's not just this, someone who's distant. He's not someone who says, I love Jesus, but not really care about his people. But just as a quick side note, is an impossibility if you say you're a Christian. Say, I love Jesus, but not his people. I love Jesus, but not the church. Timothy flat out contradicts that idea. He's someone who is a servant, a leader, but Paul wants to highlight here he's genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. Now, Epaphroditus, the second man in, these, in this section. Someone we, I think this is, this is really the only kind of instance we know anything about this man. And we need to, what we do know, though, from this paragraph is actually really important. It seems like from here and then a little bit later on in the, in the letter that Epaphroditus was the one who originally went from, most likely Paul's in Rome, went from where, Paul's at, where Paul is at in Rome, carried the letter of the Philippi, to, to the Philippians to the church in Philippi. Epaphroditus seems to have been sort of the mailman, if you will, delivering this letter. And so Paul has this to say about Paphroditus, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. Now, within just verse 25, Paul gave Epaphroditus. There's five different metaphors or five different descriptors of this man, Epaphroditus. Now, I'm not going to preach a five-point mini-sermon on all five of them, but they are worth pointing out. Number one, he calls him his brother. Number two, his fellow worker. Number three, his fellow soldier. Number four, his messenger. And number five, minister. And all five of those are really important. Again, you see the, the brotherly, familial affection. He's my brother. Brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, the, the word there, is the, one of the most common words used in all the New Testament to describe the church. That we're family. We're brothers and we're sisters. But Paul also calls Epaphratus fellow worker and fellow soldier. Now, this is another sort of instance where Paul is, he's doing some like ninja Bible writing here. Where he's kind of pointing out, here's someone, because the idea of, of being a fellow worker or a fellow soldier, the idea of fellow is this same idea when you go flip all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 2, of someone who's in this has the same mind, the same heart. There's, this, there's a wordplay that's happening there where Paul's saying, here is this example lived out. Here is this flesh and blood reality being lived out. This fellow worker, fellow soldier has the same mind, same heart, same affection, all these same things together. Here it is, church. In fact, this idea of being of, the, of, of a fellow worker or a fellow soldier, kind of the, the root of, of what's happening here, it's the word syner, synergo, the word we get synergy from. It's the idea of being together. You know, have you ever had like, someone that you work well with? Someone in ministry, someone in life where there's synergy that's happening that you're able to kind of work well together, you kind of know kind of where each other's going because you, you're, you're committed to the same cause. And it's no longer just about you or your preferences, no longer about you or what you want, but you're working together for something bigger than yourself. That's the idea that Paul's conveying here. That Epaphroditus, as a fellow worker and fellow soldier, he's not trying to advance his own cause. He's not trying to advance his own agenda or mission or whatever that might be. But no, he says, he recognizes that he's side by side with Paul in something much bigger than himself. Verse 26, though, goes on. For he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, think about what Paul just said there in verse 26. Why is Epaphroditus distressed. Why is Epaphroditus bothered? Because the church in Philippi is worried about Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus is ill. Think about this. Epaphroditus is the one who is sick. Epaphroditus is the one who is, for whatever reason, has come across some disease or something. He's the one that should be complaining. He's the one that the church in Philippi should be caring for. He's the one that the church in Philippi should be having concern for. But even in the midst of Epaphroditus' own sickness, he's concerned for others. Do you see that? Again, it's another hint. Paul's showing the flesh and blood example. This is a life worthy of the gospel. This is a Philippians 2, 5 through 11 sort of life. These are the kinds of men, these are the kinds of people you should honor. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill near toward death, or near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I, Paul says, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. Don't read too fast there. Paul, do you know what Paul just said in verse 28? Paul said he was anxious. Paul, don't you know? Don't be anxious about anything. (laughs) I think someone wrote that, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we take these beautiful, profound lines and lift them out of their context And say, okay, you're facing anxiety, Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything. Have a nice day. It's a little more complicated than that, right? And I say that kind of like as a little teaser. Pastor Dusty's going to preach on that in a couple weeks, so I'll save that for him. But just so you know, Paul himself was anxious. Paul himself, because of what we just read right here, is saying, I hope to be less anxious as I'm able to send Epaphroditus back to you. And that you all are able to see him again. So he says in verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And here it is. Honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now verse 30, before we move on to point three, is really important. Where he says again, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, underline that phrase, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I mentioned a moment ago that we don't really know a ton about Epaphroditus. But what we can deduce from his name is that if you kind of just take the E and the P off and take the U and the S off, what you have left in the middle is Epaphrodite. So it seems like what most people think is that Epaphroditus is named after the Greek god or Greek goddess Epaphrodite, the god of sex, the god of pleasure. So it seems like probably his past, Epaphroditus's past, was not a Christian upbringing originally. But at some point during probably the ministry of the church in Philippi, he becomes a Christian. And that the idea of him being named Epaphroditus conveys this idea of one who would risk one's life to enjoy all the pleasures of the world. And so that's really what his name means. Someone who kind of gambles with his life or one who gambles his life for the sake of sexual pleasure in particular. And here, Paul does, again, Bible ninja work. It's almost like he has help or something. That Paul says he risked his life. Not for his own pleasure, not for his own comfort, but for what? For the work of Christ. Do you see, friends, what Paul is doing here? Do you see how Paul is wanting to show the church in Philippi? Here's someone who's not living for their own interests, here's someone who's not living for their own pleasure. This is a life worthy of the gospel. This is a life that considers who counts this, the, the interests of others more than the interests of themselves. Here's what this looks like. Risking one's life for the sake of the gospel. Now, we've looked at, number one, the placement of this passage, where it flows in the letter, why Paul, I think, has been very intentional with where he's placed. Number one, the placement of this passage. But also, we just looked at the two men of this passage. But I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at number three, the only command of this passage. And we've alluded to a number of times here, number, or verse 29 rather, honor such men. This is what Paul, at the end of the day, wants the church in Philippi to know and what the church to do in light of these two paragraphs. So what is honor? Honor. One person writes is a spe- is the specific recognition of the value, contribution, and importance of others. The specific recognition of the value, contribution, and importance of others this isn't just general, like saying nice things. That's we call that flattery, right? But specific contribution, value, and importance of honor of others. In Paul's day, honor was like the, when you would give honor to someone, it was giving them the higher social status. Like this is the culture, Paul, that Paul lives in what many people call an honor-shame culture, where honor is the thing that you're seeking. Honor is the thing that you want. You want to be seen as more honorable. You want the higher social standing. And think about, again, Philippians 2, the whole point of Philippians 2, and Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in particular, is consider others more significant than yourselves. So when Paul says honor such men, it's another avenue to live out what he's previously talked about, to consider, lift up, to recognize the worth, the value, the contribution, the importance of someone else more than yourself. See others, Paul is saying, see these two men in particular, and these kinds of lives, these, these kinds of selfless lives, as lives that are actually worthy of the gospel, Lives that reflect the beauty of the gospel. But let me ask you this question. What is the opposite of honor? What's the opposite of honor? Many people would say the opposite of honor is contempt. Contempt. Arthur C. Brooks, a writer, a columnist, Talks about, he says this about contempt. He's quoting someone else, but he says the social psychologist and relational expert John Gottman was famously able to predict with up to a 94% accuracy whether a couple would divorce just by observing a brief snippet of a conversation. The biggest warning signs of all were indications of contempt, such as sneering and hostile humor. Disagreement is normal, but dismissiveness can be deadly now so what is contempt someone put it like this that resentment is anger towards someone of a higher social status anger is something that's towards someone of a similar social status but contempt is anger towards someone as a has perceived lower social status and so when we talk about this idea of contempt or what many people understand, that we live in a culture of contempt. What we're talking about, what people out there are saying, is that we have a tendency as human beings to compare and look at each other in a way where we elevate ourselves and look down at other people. And this can be subtle. It can be almost hidden. But many people would call this contempt. And it's the exact opposite of honor. If contempt is putting someone below you, honor is seeking to elevate the other person. Honor is seeking to bring recognition and value and importance to someone else to see them as higher than yourself. Fleming Rutledge says this, contempt is the claim toward relative superiority. In our culture, whether we recognize it or not, is full of contempt. And contempt will destroy the body of Christ and our relationships. But Paul is wanting to tell the church in Philippi, honor Honor such men. Be a community of honor that does not belittle or bring other people down, but lifts other people up. And honor, if I may say it like this, honor is actually a really important theme, really important thread all throughout Scripture. I kind of was thinking about this, this this week as I was looking at this passage. I'm like, honor, is that, is that really that big a deal? But I was just like amazed at all of the different references, all the different ways that the Bible speaks about honor. I wanted to share all of them with you this morning. Actually, just a few. Let me put them on a slide here. And I recognize that this is like violating everything they tell you about what not to do with slides, putting this many words on a slide, right? But I just, I don't don't expect you to take notes on this or write all this down, but I just wanna show you just very briefly all of the different ways, some of the different ways the Bible speaks about honor, how the Trinity is a community of honor, the Father and the Son honoring one another. We will honor God, Revelation 5, for all eternity. Or Isaiah 53, number 3 on the screen, talks about how all of creation honors God. Or 1 Corinthians 6, kind of we alluded to this in our profession of faith, that we are to honor God with our bodies, that you are not your own. How is that for a verse for individualism? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so therefore honor God with your body. Husbands are to honor their wives so that, 1 Peter 3, 7, rabbit hole alert, your prayers may not be hindered. Or number six, parents we love this one, right? Honor your father and mother. And last but not least, again this is not exhaustive by any means, but last on this list, Romans 12 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. It's the one time in all the New Testament where there's any semblance of like competitiveness. Outdo one another in showing honor. There should be a culture, if I can say it like this, of competition, if you will, toward outdoing one another and showing honor. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of going away with about 150 men here at Cormdale for our men's retreat. It was the first time that I was able to participate in that. We moved here in January, and so it was a, really just a great time to just to get to meet some guys and hang out and whatnot. But one of the things that really stood out to me was a few different moments throughout the, the different sessions When we were all gathered in a room, you know, a little bit smaller than this, about 150 of us in one room. And Pastor Dusty led us in a time of honoring one another. Specific value, importance, encouragement. What I see in that you, brother, I honor you for that. In front of 150 people. One person would have the courage to get up, call out another person across the room and say, brother... Because of this, because of that, because of what I see God doing in your life there, I honor you. And just a profound counter-cultural thing that was. And a culture that wants to bring people down and tear people down. May the body of Christ be a place, a community where we seek to build one one another up, where we recognize specific contribution and worth and importance and value, where we recognize that it's because of the good news of Jesus, friends. It's because Jesus has rescued us from sin and death that we are free to not just live lives for ourselves. Because of what Paul has already talked about in Philippians 2, laid aside all glory and honor and has given that up to rescue us from sin and death, that now sets us free that gives us the freedom to say, you know what, my life is not about me. My life is not about what I can achieve and what I can get, how I might one up someone else. But no, I'm free now to look at my brother and sister, to see them as an image bearer of God, to see the glory that they have, the dignity and the value and the worth that they have and honor them for that. Ray Orland talks about how the idea that because we are in Christ, that we will one day be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. And this idea in theology is called glorification, that we will be fully glorified, fully in his presence, fully conformed to him. And because of that reality, because right now in this room, you are sitting next to, as C.S. Lewis might say, no mere mortal. You're sitting next to someone who's made in the image of God, and if they're a Christian, will be fully made alive and full of glory one day. Why not now in the present recognize and honor them as such now? Ray Orland says himself, In a predatory world, people cut each other down to size every day. Some of us have never known anything else, even in our homes growing up. But how different is a healthy church? There we lift each other up, not with empty flattery, but with real honor because real glory is beginning to appear. Let's notice it. Let's celebrate it. The end goal, being conformed to the image of Jesus, is becoming visible right now in the saints all around us. How can we keep quiet about that? And so, friends, I just want to end this morning with one simple question. One simple question It's this. It's actually from Ray Oran himself. He asked this about honor. What is it deep inside all of us that shrinks from openly honoring one another for the real evidence of divine grace that is visible and even obvious? What misunderstanding of Jesus and his gospel holds us back? What is it deep inside of us, that shrinks back from seeking to honor, to elevate someone else above ourselves. And how might the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself, who was in the form of God that kind of quality with God is something that you grasp, but laid that aside, giving up his rights, giving up his honor, giving up his glory, going to the depths to rescue you and me, how might that truth set you free To recognize and to see and notice with specificity, with intentionality, and with joy. The honor that's in your brothers and sisters sitting right next to you. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that your scripture, every time we open it and read it, is your very word. That we hear from you, the living God, the creator, the only true God, every time we come to the text. And so we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would give us a deeper hunger for the things of you. May your word penetrate our hearts. May the truths of your word sink deep within us. Do not let us walk idly by throughout our weeks and our days just ignoring you and ignoring what you have to say. And may you help us take what you have revealed to us the glorious truths of who you are and what you've done for us, the free gift of your grace. And may that set us free to be men and women that honor and love and serve one another. So help us to that, we pray in your name. Amen.